everyone has the potential to achieve. So we make sure that our qualifications give all students the opportunity to show what they can do and progress to the next stage of their lives. Our UK qualifications are highly valued by employers and universities around the world. As an independent education charity, our income is reinvested back into AQA's charitable activities, funds our cutting edge research and supports our initiatives to help young people facing challenges in life realize their potential. Hello there. Thanks for joining me today for another job pod. Now, today, by the magic of technology, I'm joined by Dr. Gemma Sue, who's in Australia, the Vice Chancellor's Fellow at Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Welcome to Job Pod, Gemma. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. It's um, <laughs> 5 pm here. It's freezing cold in Melbourne, but yeah, excited. Thank you so much for the invite. Oh, it's a pleasure. And um, what a giveaway. I thought you were going to be Australian, but here we are, you're not. <laughs> I and mean, prior to your time, I wasn't sure what you'd done, but but I, I did do some research. Prior to your time in Melbourne, you were a, a lecturer at the Humanitarian Conflict Response Institute at the University of Manchester. And you're an editor of the Journal of Humanitarian Affairs. Really interesting. You call yourself a development geographer and you draw, I talked to my wife about this, she said, oh, crikey, this is really interesting. You've got, and I'll tell you why in a bit, but you draw on post-colonial discourse, you explore human environment relationships, and mm-hmm. you've got a particular interest in sustainable development in, in disaster-affected contexts. But it's more than that. It's about looking at the everyday lived experiences, which brings that sort of experience much closer to students when they're looking at a at a sense of place and the lived experience in that place. Mm-mm-mm. Where did that all come from? How did you develop that interest? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'd like to say that it was a grand plan <laughs> a young age. And I think I envy academics who can say that. But I kind of like, in honesty, fell into it because I did a, a politics degree and then I was approached by the the program director say oh why don't you do a master's in it and a phd and they'd already had sort of a program a topic that they wanted people to start focusing on which is climate change in so-called global south countries so i kind of slotted into that but i was already interested in it so it wasn't it wasn't such a hardship but the interest in the whole everyday experiences i think is because and it sounds really trite i am just interested in um people which does sound very trite but or the hidden experiences that people have or the hidden mundane everyday experiences that people have in in disaster affected contexts, which I think are super important, which I've seen in my own research, because they are extraordinary experiences for people. But as an outsider, you often maybe are not privy to how extraordinary those particular experiences may be because they are so mundane or routine, hidden every day. But through speaking to people, I sort of start to recognise and appreciate the gravity of that everyday experiences in disaster context. If that I makes sense. It, can be, yeah. it does, and I think it can be a forgotten aspect of, of geography to draw that personal contact. It becomes impersonal if you're not careful, and you forget that these are, these are real people who have many more similarities to us than any differences. 
but it, it appears yeah. just look at it from a more aloof context. You don't realise what's what's happening with with real people. I think that's a symptom of climate change and you know disasters are here and they're increasing and it's very it's a pressing issue around the world and we need to address that so i think naturally a lot of researchers are interested in or a lot of research is getting funded about how to mitigate climate change how to adapt to climate change prepare recover etc you know very practical instrumentalized ways of thinking about addressing these problems so naturally, you will kind of forget about these so-called peripheral or not so uh, important elements to address climate change. And that's why I think the everyday slips through the cracks, because it, it's not directly related to how we can adapt or how we can mitigate climate change. But it's it's nevertheless the way that people navigate or live with climate change so if you look at my own research it's not doesn't have a specific agenda to say this is how we mitigate climate change this is how we adapt to climate change it's not so developmental focused it's more about just representing life with climate change i don't know if you i don't know if this is right so you can challenge me on this one but it, it seems to me that if you take that other approach then it can feel that people are being done to. So you get misconceptions developing among students about those sorts of people not having any agency themselves. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a that is a big issue in certain disciplines, perhaps. I mean, not disciplines, I think it maybe depends on your methodology. So if you're using quants or surveys, perhaps you're more broadly speaking, quants people may shout at me, but you're not able to appreciate the agency of people or maybe the very subtle, intuitive, small scale ways that people adapt or mitigate climate change or more adapt or prepare. A lot of research is like looking at the world from above. And increasingly, there's a lot more research, which is ethnographic, you know, life history, oral history interviews or participant observation, etc. And that is allowing researchers to gather that kind of lived experience. Whereas if you take, you know, a top down approach to research or, you know, addressing climate change, you're naturally not going to get the appreciation of you're not going to have a portal basically into people's lived experiences, which other methods allow you to. And it, because of that, you're naturally a lot of research is not able to create these representations or stories or findings about people which create a more fuller spectrum of people's personalities or people's experiences or, you know, people's voices, because naturally they're not capturing that in the particular methods that they're using. So yeah, misrepresentations do happen because you're not able to capture the agency or the small scale resilience that people have. I, I want to come back to what you said there about story in a bit. But before I do, I, I'd just like to to go through some of the places where you've researched, because it's like my holiday bucket list. You've been to Antarctica. <laughs> I go. Yeah, OK. Australia, Bolivia, Brazil, Nicaragua, Puerto Rico, the UK. Well, Tell us a little bit about the places you've been and how, how that's come about. 
So I've always had an interest in South America and within development studies, which is what I did my PhD in, there's a history or a tendency, a tradition of doing research in the African continent. And I actually, to be honest, I don't have a, a great understanding of, of Africa. And there's more research coming from Britain in that continent. So I was really particularly interested in, let's go to Latin America, fill in those particular gaps. I spoke Spanish. And yeah, I went to Bolivia for my PhD and I was particularly interested in indigeneity and how um, indigenous groups experience climate change. So you have Quechua, Aymara groups there. And I found that they're marginalized socially, politically, economically marginalized. So they can't afford as much. They can't access higher education as well as other groups mestizos they go so they go into lower paid jobs in general can't afford to live on safe land so they live in cheap areas or or they settle elite so-called illegally and there's you know landslides there because it's geophysically insecure so spent 10 months there i mean it's an incredible incredible country brazil was was part of a group project with researchers from Brazil and researchers from Argentina and we were looking at how people emotionally experience favelas that are affected by floods and landslides so how what are the different emotions that people feel when they walk through favelas and trying to move beyond binaries of happy sad scared or safe trying to identify more ambivalent emotions that people experience but I mean I don't want to go on through each country but I'm just very fortunate and I've been able to work within teams to look to explore these different issues because a lot of I, I can't do this stuff on my own it's good to have a different interdisciplinary angle or have people who who live there so working with local research assistants or you know yeah local academics has been really beneficial as someone coming as an outsider I'll come back to one or two of these in a bit then, because I, I, I am interested in, in what you said about Barbuda too. And uh, but oh. we'll come to that one, because I, I do want to follow up as well what you were talking about in, in terms of story. Because I, I have to confess, I hadn't seen your work. What, what an omission. So I read your paper on communicating crisis research with comics. And I was a little bit sceptical when I started. And I shouldn't have been at all because it's absolutely fantastic. And I should have known because when I was working at the GA, a colleague of mine got me interested in, in the work of Brunner and the lesson of the story. Mm -hmm. Stories are much more effective ways of getting over ideas, not just to students, but to adults as well. And he said, yeah. why are we intellectually dismissive towards narrative? That was one of the questions in his um, in a Guardian article, why do we treat it as trashy? And part of me was thinking, I'm not so sure about comics, but it, it, just, it goes much further than just presenting knowledge and facts. It allows students and, well, and adults to use their imagination to create something around that set of facts that's much more memorable and much more personal and, and makes it a, a much deeper experience, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I think missing in what students in particular, or what, you know, general folk learn 
how they're exposed to climate change and disasters. You either see it through statistics that are rattled off about how quickly the sea level is rising or how quickly the polar ice caps are melting, or you might see news reports about there's been a flood in Bangladesh and you might see people at their most painful, suffering, vulnerable and distressed. So what I think is kind of missing in those two quick examples is the human human experience basically the social cultural psychological impacts of climate change which I think is overlooked in climate change education and also being able to lean in and find out what are people's personalities like in the climate change affected areas and you can do that with comics like you can't do that with um, news media reports so much or at least they don't because it's just you know quick few seconds of people crying in general with a comic you have to create three-dimensional characters because the culture of comics is generally first person narrative from the perspective of lived experience and there's comic scholars who talk about how that that can allow readers a portal into the lived experience of people in this example affected by climate change. And that can create what Juliet Fall calls a critical outrage grounded in empathy. So that whole idea of comics of centering on a particular protagonist is so I think that's so powerful and is is a huge gap in climate change and and disaster communications in general I mean there are many more things I love about comics and I could go on all day about comics to be honest (laughs) but that first person narrative is so unique to comics and I think is missing in how we generally are exposed to climate change stories or information it's interesting again a a colleague of mine uh, Duncan Hawley when we were looking at living with volcanoes he used a story. I was doing some work with teachers at the time. I was doing a CPD course. And he said, mm-hmm. you really ought to get the, the teachers to look at this novel and the, the extract yeah. about volcanoes. And I did. And we juxtaposed that with an, an AS level. It was in those days, an AS level text. And I said at the end, which would you use? And the teacher, well, no, I said, which was best? And the teachers all said, the extract from the novel is best. I said, which mm. would you use in your classroom? And they said, the AS textbook, because we haven't got enough time. And that, oh, yeah. that was a problem that I think the comic, I think, is unique. I found this, this quote is from Shoot. It's uniquely able to distill complex ideas into engaging and highly learnable forms. It can distill things better than using perhaps a chapter with some more dense text but still interesting from a book from a novel I think it can but I say it with caution so yes it does distill complex ideas but it's they still rely on readers bringing their knowledge and imagination to fill in the gaps because I will hold my hands up and say I can read my comics and totally understand the story because I know the broader context and I can fill in those silences or those, you know, gutters on the page, which are basically spaces. But that is also a strength of them because you can rely on an image to 
communicate an idea that you you don't need text for and for example um in the after maria comic or in the recent comic everyday stories of climate change we, we wanted to talk about women from bolivia bolivian women who go and migrate to spain they send home remittances to fund the construction of more resilient houses and landslide zones and with that you have separation from children you have a lot of psychological impact emotional labor because of that estrangement you could talk about that you know in really elaborate ways with the language maybe that i'm using now emotional labor um you know feminization of migration all of that but actually fundamentally you can see that in the six panels on the page where you see the mother talking on the phone to her children they're upset there's few words i miss you mama i miss you ninos that is literally emotional labor that you're seeing you're seeing the feminization of migration because she's the one who's migrated but um yeah i mean fundamentally that's that's the beauty of them they distill those what might be really verbose and flowery language of academics like it's there in front of you it makes it really important that the imagery is right because it can be i think it can be naff if you get that wrong if you're trying to put a human face on it it's got to it's got to be believable even though it's Mm. got to be believable and you've worked with some tremendous artists so what was your decision-making process how did you come up to pick the artists that you had done because i think it works really well with with the ideas well the second comic i can talk about that with more insight so the second comics by this illustrator from london called cat sims and for this comic it crosses bangladesh south africa bolivia puerto rico and barbuda and it was going to be people of different races ethnicities ages so i really needed to work with somebody who was sensitive to that type of you know identities different identities and there are certain artists that i trialed i worked with already because i contacted three different artists and i said can you draw some sketches of this scene or characters and their style was really i don't know if naive is the right word but simple soft lines thick lines so you couldn't get the detail that cat has and that was really important because if i'm honest you're trying to represent people of different racial identities you don't want it to look inaccurate or too cartoony because it, it can come across as like stereotypical racist so that was super important the another thing was you you have to pick somebody who's amazing at visual storytelling so i can write the script but actually it's often not that great it's a bit naff because i'm just throwing lots of words in text dialogue captions so cat says no too much text too much dialogue let's strip it back you don't need that dialogue Gemma you can just do it with a facial expression or we can change the perspective so it's bird's eye view to give that sense of hopelessness with the characters so you you need to have somebody who is is not too gentle they they have the confidence to push back on you and say when I'm wrong even though it's my research say they can say no you're not telling the story visually well so they're the two really fundamental things with it, with an artist. One of the things I read was an article in The Conversation, and it was a, it's saying much the same as you've said, really, that uh, if, if we're trying to teach about climate change, often the ideas are abstract. So they talk about the planet is warming or, 
or rainfall is not very predictable. Yeah, yeah. And and it posed that question: how how do we teach? Some young people are really engaged by this, but a lot of them, it's just too abstract. So how do we teach young people about climate change? And the one we're talking about is everyday stories of climate change, isn't it? That's your... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the comic piece. And and it, it's about how different people around the world experience that, that climate change. What was the experience that you found most, most challenging, most um, unexpected when you were doing that? Oh, making the comic. Um, I'll tell you what was really interesting was we'd finished the comic and it was all drawn. It was all inked. I was like, yes, we've done it. We shared one page of the comic on Twitter and it was the page based on Adiba's research in Bangladesh. And there's a caption and it says, sea level rise has caused the salination of the river or the river has become salty because of the sea level rise, something like that, implying that it is just sea level rise that's caused the river to become salty. Anyway, we shared that on, on Twitter and we had a couple of academics really criticise us saying, no, it's not just sea level rise that's caused the river to become salty. It's development aid projects, such as the construction of embankments, the, the funding of shrimp farms, all of that is gradually caused the salination of the river. Sea level rise is just one part of it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this we cannot omit that. Like we can't erase this colonial story or neo-colonial story. So we went back in and we changed some of the text, um, some of the captions, added that story about embankments etc so it's kind of a good thing in a way because we caught it in time but also I wanted to talk about that because it just demonstrates that you're not absolved from critical scholarly engagement with the comic you're still being scrutinized for your academic rigor so just because it's an just because it's a drawing doesn't mean you're let off the hook and you can dumb down your findings or misrepresent a, a context. So that was a challenge to respond to that particular critique. But I think it's just it goes to show how it's not some sort of subpar form of communication. You're still open to critique, which is great. It's reassuring that other academics are engaging with it. I think that's fantastic. I hadn't realised yet that. I didn't read that anywhere, so I hadn't found that in anything that you've written about the the comics. There, that's that's really interesting. Were there anything? How else did you test it then? That so that's one page that went out on Twitter. What else yeah. is the review process? We go back and we speak to some of the people in our research. We say, okay, double check. The people that I chose to be on the comic, Gene and Adiba, are so deeply embedded in their research context. So I was assured that they have good relationships with the, the uh, research participants. So I was felt confident about the research, but there were certain things that we weren't double sure on. So they go back and they consult with people in the contexts. What else did we do? Just going through our own research finding as well, going back through transcripts, going back through videos, going back through photos to make sure that the script is as representative of the context and of people's testimonials as possible. But there is no, I mean, there could have been, there is no kind of peer review process in that sense. Yeah, 
I don't know what it would look like if it was. Maybe we should do that. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe that may be even more of a headache. <laughs> but I think fundamentally, the people on that project, that comic, we are so deeply connected to our research, really in-depth, qualitative data. So that's the confidence in the finding and the stories is there. It's just sometimes filling in the little nuances or the little the little everyday experiences that we may not, we didn't really ask about in our research, we'd go back and just double check. Something else I wanted to ask you about, I've just been reading about this for the first time, and there was a TV programme about it. They were were on the Caribbean island of Barbuda, following the hurricane. Hurricane Irma. And that that was where that term disaster capitalists came up, after Irma. It was new to me. I've seen things happening. Uh, we used to have an exchange in Zanzibar, and the development there wasn't really to do with after a disaster, but it was to do with companies realising that the Spice Island could really be manipulated if we have some really flashy hotels on the beach and everybody else is excluded. So, But this is slightly different. So I had to read up on the term disaster capitalism. What do, what do we mean there? Oh, I always hate those questions about concepts, (laughs) but fundamentally it's, and it's, it's not just, you know, unique to Barbuda, it's a global phenomenon. After a major disaster, you'll often find this rhetoric of disaster as opportunity, or even the phrase build back better, where there is this idea that in rebuilding a society or recovering a society we can improve it and it depends who's saying that basically you might find that private companies and private organizations and multinationals for example or even the state will try to rebuild an area in a way that's more economically productive fundamentally so how can we rebuild an area that will have a greater economic footprint or produce more capital, basically. And it can look very different in in context. So where I did work in Nicaragua, there was a flood in Managua City by the lake. After that, the state was like, we cannot look after you in this area. It's a flood zone. You need to move, basically. Told people that it was too unsafe, too risky. You know, we can't build a flood wall everybody was displaced and then they built an amusement park and the amusement park was bringing lots of tourists lots of locals spending money basically so it's trying to cash in on the post-disaster situation and often it's not thinking about the best interest of the people who are living there it's thinking the best interest of profit it's basically profit over people the same thing is happening in Barbuda yeah they're trying to build luxury hotels on the lagoon where it's the world's biggest frigate bird habitat they have this unique bird called the west indian whistling duck there's mangroves there that stop you know reduce the impacts of hurricanes but all these multinational hotel chains are trying to build luxury hotels on the lagoon and thereby trying to force people off their land or make the island overrun by tourists and there's huge pushback by people in Barbuda against that but this is absolutely not unique it's happens to most most large-scale disasters and it's hidden through a rhetoric of 
you know, it's going to bring jobs, it's going to bring, you know, economic prosperity for everybody, as if it's going to trickle down and everybody will benefit. But, you know, trickle down economics, you know, that's often a lot, a lot of rubbish. Um, people are just displaced off their land and then moved away from their livelihoods and um, social networks and jobs, etc. That's what I like about the story, uh, or the everyday stories, I should say. You just said that. It's very different in different places. And of course it is, because you follow the climate-induced migration in Bolivia, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, and then this disaster capitalist response in Barbuda. So it's always different. And, I, and I'm, yeah. I'm still not sure that if if we're not careful taking things out of textbook, whether students appreciate that that range of difference to a set of people who are, like I said before, who are more similarities than differences to us, but it's still different in different places, the experiences that those people have. And it's encouraging students to, or giving students the opportunity to understand all those different differences. Yeah, absolutely. And we chose the context for that, to some extent because actually you could pick any country in the world and talk about the impacts of climate change but we've chose the findings from our research to reflect that because there there are many themes that cut across all of those contexts but we wanted to home in on key debates in disasters and climate change disaster capitalism is one the racialized experiences of climate change Migration as adaptation is, you know, another debate which we talk about in Bolivia. Food security in Puerto Rico is it's another thing around climate change and the gendered impacts of climate change. So when you read the comic, you'll see that there's a key overarching theme in each context so that, yes, students can, can go on that journey and see, yes, there definitely are differences, but one of the key themes I think is like gendered impacts of climate change. Most of the stories we focus on are about women and that's a natural outcome of our research being around the home and domestic space and women spend more time at home. They, you know, they maintain the domestic duties. So methodologically we are getting women's experiences. So now I'm a teacher and I'm getting excited by this because I want to use the uh, <laughs> I want to use the novel. But you've not only produced the novel, which I could use, you've also created a set of resources to go with it. Well, we have. Thank you very much. Thank you for saying that, John. So get a little plug in there. That's because I was so fortunate to work with the Geography Teachers Association of Victoria, which is based here in Melbourne, and they created a resource from like year seven to year 10. And I think in the UK, that's age 12 to 16. And I looked at it and it's certainly geography teachers in the UK can work when can use it as well. Just maybe the codes for certain courses won't be the same. And it, it's brilliant. So I was so excited when I saw it. They, they speak about how it, the comic can help people to teach students about yeah food insecurity inequality well-being even creative writing they talked about that too students can explore the latitude and longitude of these different locations the population size you know the what's the number you use when it's the uh, the size of the economy gpi oh there's several of them gdp GDP, yeah, I forgot. My gosh, I'm going to lose my credentials. Um, all the, all those sorts of things. It's super, and 
literally like it's so great like if you're a geography teacher listen to this we literally made the comic for, for geography teachers and the teaching resource is there to basically so a geography teacher can pick up the comic pick up the teaching resource and just make their life a little bit easier in teaching climate change and i don't know what it's like in the uk actually because i've been gone a bit too long but here in australia students are crying out for climate change being on the curriculum and in particular there's a lot of eco-anxiety with students there's an annoyance actually that there isn't enough social sciences in how it's being taught and there's a bit of an anger around why aren't we being taught how to mitigate or adapt to climate change and not that the comic is doing that like we don't talk about mitigation but we show how to people are adapting but um yeah what's it like in the uk is are the oh, students really yeah, wanting yes it is, is it? And, and it's been uh, the subject of two or three podcasts Oh, was it? Okay. I talked to Kit Rackley about um, eco-anxiety. Kit is very concerned and has produced a number of resources uh, and links to other resources. Right. There's Radical Paul, who also we did a, a podcast together, have done some tremendous work looking at uh, those sorts of issues. Climate change here, it's, it's because I genuinely think it's because Australia is so impacted by climate change, like the floods only a few weeks ago in Sydney, the bushfires. And I think, yeah, maybe because I didn't really notice when I was back in the UK, but students really, it's front and centre of what they're thinking about. And like you said, it may, must, it's like that in the UK too, it seems. And the resources are based around inquiry questions, which I think are perfectly suitable for the UK, I think the best geography is, is based around inquiry questions that create a need to know. And, and I think that's exactly what that Australian curriculum for geography does. It poses mm. those questions and creates that mm. in, intrigue. Oh, I wonder, I wonder why. So the more complicated ones are things like how do world views influence decisions on how to manage environmental and social change? Wow, but how do they? Yeah. And it, so it is, it's it's perfectly applicable. Yeah, we're just hoping it will, yeah, it helps teachers. Because I know a lot of geography teachers, they've got huge workloads and they're often having to teach outside their specialisms and having to create their own resources too to teach these sorts of subjects. I want to, there's an awful lot we could talk about, but I want to talk about one or two of the other novels that you've been involved with. Because the, the first one I looked at, it wasn't the climate change one. It was after Maria. And oh, that's yes. described as, here we go, an ethnographic novella. Here's the description. A, a trailblazing emblem in the field, published in 2020 as a free and open resource designed to accurately document experiences of disaster victims for use in educational settings. Well, we, there's a quote. It who, sounds absolutely Who said that? <laughs> who said that? I've I never heard that in my life. <laughs> well, I didn't. Was that Pay my mum ten pounds to write that. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, it was you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I know. I never heard that. I, I, that was the first one I read. Was after Maria. So, yeah. just tell us a little bit about that one as well and how that came about. That was based on a one-year study after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, and I followed twenty families in the same low-income neighbourhood for a year. I visited five times, once every three months to speak to those 20 women who were the house 
the heads of the families basically and just it was based on like how are you recovering what are the problems you're facing what are the you know opportunities etc very different experiences across the 20 families super different but the comic is basically an assemblage of the key findings that cut across those 20 families and it's told through the experience of one fictional family headed by this woman called Natalia. So in the comic, it's 24 pages, something like that. And you follow this one family, what this one fictional family, but there's stories, basically, an amalgamation of the key research findings. And I absolutely, that was a bit of, to be honest, it was a bit of a, like, I didn't know what I was doing. I just wanted to create something to give back to the families. I thought, what can I do? I tried to work with the local government to try and, you know, use my findings to support local recovery. They were having none of it. They were like, 20 families, that's not a lot. We need massive surveys to change our policies. So I thought, okay, um, I'll create something I can give to the families. And I did the comic. And yeah, it was, it's not very British, is it, to like toot your own horn, but it's it's been really successful. It's been used for teaching quite a lot. And um, yeah, I'm really proud of it. Really proud of it. It does, again, for me, it, it introduces that sense of, of a shared experience almost. You can share with those people because it becomes something that you can take in. I'm not expressing this very well, but you can take in, you can feel their, you feel their feelings the way it's written. Which I you, think that I think that's a lot to do with John the illustrator. Like, yes, I like wrote it and you know had the created the dialogue, but his style of illustration is so so tender, I think. And just the shading that he uses, sometimes the perspective or the angle that he uses. That was a lot of John, I would be completely honest. He brought that more yeah, emotive side to it. He Well, he definitely elevated it astronomically just with his style of writing and the way he used the space on the page. And a lot of his work, I mean, the main reason I chose him actually is because he, he does a lot of work about mental health. He works for mental health charities. So he, he has an attentiveness to like, you know, difficult experiences, and that's the kind of stories that he's used to. So I'll put that on John. I won't take any credit. <laughs> it makes it feel very sincere, though. It makes it feel real. Um, it, it starts off in, in sort of grey and white, doesn't it? Or black and white. Mm-mm. Yeah. And I originally thought, oh, I'll do it in, in colour. And John just, he said, no, keep it in black and white just because of this the story. And you want to, you don't want to detract from the story characters with, you know, unnecessary pops of colour. And I think it works really, really well. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> well, I think, that, I think that's really clever as well. I, this is just a silly aside, but when they were still operating, I went to see the Kinks and, uh, oh, yeah. in, in Doncaster. And they came on and they, they were dressed in black and white and all the lighting was black and white. And they did all their 1960s hits in one set in black and white. Oh. And then they came on for the second set and did their new stuff and they did it in colour. And it was such a simple thing. But it's it, this is deeper, but it's the same idea. You can create that feeling of uh, of the, the immediacy after the disaster, that, the ruined state of the island. And, and their emptiness, I think, comes over in the black and whiteness of it because it's so pared down. 
Yeah, well, the black and white for sure. But if you look at this one page where it's the family, one part of the family is on the balcony and then you have the couple, Italian and her husband, on the ground and they're embracing, they're like hugging. And I wrote that scene and John was like, no, we need to go bird's eye view because then it kind of gives across visually this idea of being small and surrounded by all this destruction. So even that sort of like visual trick allows you to represent the enormity of the problem and like the overwhelmingness that people face. And the same thing with the bird's eye view of all the destruction. Just, yeah, trying to show the magnitude of the impacts. And you can see a few little people dotted about. And a lot of that was John's idea, just playing with scale and perspective. Which brings us back to what we said at the beginning, doesn't it, about the importance of the drawing to the story, the importance of the, mm-hmm. the cartoonist or the, the illustrator to that. Definitely. Uh, they're, half, they're half the process, if, yeah, or at least a third. <laughs> And it also, it also introduces the idea that geographers quite often talk about, that there's no such thing as, as a natural disaster. There's a natural... No. We can't say that. We never say that. It's a big no-no. Yeah. And, and this <laughs> yeah. gets over in this. It's, you get the idea that this is not natural, not entirely. Yeah, this. absolutely. I wish I could talk more about that in the Puerto Rico context because... There's a huge, you know, 500 year history of colonialism, which has created the structural dependency, political economic dependency and decrepit infrastructure, which exacerbated the impact of the hurricane. But that's, yeah, that's that's kind of a part of the story that wasn't included in the comic. And I think if I was to do it again, I definitely would bring that more in. But yeah, of course, I was very adamant on trying to show that it's a state that's created by social, political, economic structures. And you can see that after the hurricane and how people, some people get support, others don't get support, how the state doesn't step in, how local government and local mayors are, you know, slow to act. Yeah, that, that was definitely a priority. Well, I think that's your homework then for, for our next <laughs> podcast is <laughs> to go in and produce another one that gives us a, a deeper understanding of this these ethical dimensions of colonialization and its impact when you have a disaster you know what i i definitely think there is a there is a gap there in in general the, the stories that are told or how climate change is talked about in a lot of research and policy media colonialism is completely erased and I think that's an absolute omission, like a glaring omission. And if we start thinking about how colonialism has shaped the vulnerability of a lot of countries around the world today, which you know exacerbates impacts, then we can start talking about reparations and what would reparations look like in an era of climate change, which is something like I'm going a bit, little bit off piece, but I think it's a really exciting area or thing to be discussing there's a there's a great research called leon seeley huggins and he talks about climate reparations in the caribbean and how that could look like development programs adaptation programs yes it could be you know financial investment but a lot of it is around climate change adaptation programs and how that could form part of reparations so yeah i'll do another comic about 
colonialism disasters. <laughs> Seriously, though, that's that's it's, it's super. It's just a key part of the climate change story that is often missing. Well, I'm beginning to see a little bit of writing uh, about Haiti and why it's yeah. as it is for, sure. for, for students. But there wasn't much up until very recently at all, I don't think, that provided that backstory. I think that's quite new writing for and considering yeah. students these days. And uh, I think Haiti is like an obvious example, but you could probably talk about about colonialism most countries around the world to be honest and how that shapes the impacts of climate change but yeah it keeps certain case studies that are always you know relied upon for stories of colonialism but it's it's a global experience for like you know so-called global south countries yeah i definitely should do that comic <laughs> you're right <laughs> right homework i'll be marking it in years time um, <laughs> And you also do have resources as well. So there's resources and guidance for teachers around After Maria too, isn't there? Well, with the After Maria one, I didn't work with the, with the Teachers Association, but if you look at the back of the comic, I've included maybe like a 1,500 words or less about what are disasters, impacts, inequality, etc. And then there's some discussion points. So, yeah, it, geography teachers can pick that up. And I know geography teachers have. I'm sorry there's no teaching resource, but... Maybe give it to the students. They can read it for 20 minutes and you can give yourself a break. Like, <laughs> that's definitely one idea. But yeah, I really, I, I'm so hopeful or I really would love it if geography teachers use the new comic. And I'd love to hear what they think about it. I'm not saying it's perfect in any ways, but yeah. I'm actually as well, I'm speaking to, I spoke to Alan Parkinson and I said, look, I would love to work with the geography teachers from the very inception of a, of a research project from sitting down with geography teachers saying what are some of the topics that you would like to teach students and then I'll go okay I'll go and do a research project to find out about that and then we can create the teaching resource together because the, these projects were done without speaking to geography teachers so I think it would be amazing to literally say what what do you want to teach and you know how can I help you do that Oh, well, what did Alan say? How's that going to come about? Or, or is that something for the future? Well, yeah, I'm, co- I'm coming back to Manchester. I'm coming back to uh, Manchester in September for a year. And I'm going to I'm gonna hit up or I'm going to stalk the, like, I think it's like the Manchester branch of the Geograph- Geographical Association. As That's right, call. yes. They don't know this yet, so <laughs> I'm going to send them an oh, email and say, I want Sue Lomas, who's a colleague of mine, and, and she's uh, she works with that branch. So, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I, I would university teacher education. So that'd be brilliant. Okay. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah, then, it, then uh, it'll have more structure, the teaching resource. I feel like it would more, it really easily, more clearly slide into the curriculum. That, that, that sounds fascinating. So when are you coming back? Um, a flight arrives on September 11th, so not very right. long. Oh, no, yeah. so you're leaving winter to come to winter. What a mistake. <laughs> I know. I might get two weeks, supposedly. I might get two good weeks in September, but like, oh, not looking forward to it. Yeah. I'll have like a one year of winter, basically, because the winters here are really bad. Nobody knows that. I arrived thinking I was going to be in, like, you know, home and away, but it's freezing. Oh, crikey. And another <laughs> misconception challenge yeah, no. home and away misrepresents australia <laughs> <I'll> tell you that 
We could talk for hours, but I think we ought to stop there because I think there's there's room for at least one more podcast here. That's been absolutely fascinating, Gemma. Yeah, I'm real good time. Thank you so much. We'll make sure that teachers can uh, can get the links to this, the graphic novels because I think it's a fantastic resource. Brilliant. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. So if it can be of help, yeah, it's great. It's all online. It's all free. So yeah, please. Please download the comic and the teaching resource. You can find both on my website. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed that, John. That was great. Lovely.